pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. You still speak through your word. We thank you that your word is perfect and restores the soul. And that your word is sure. It makes wise the simple. That your word is right and it rejoices the heart. Your word is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your words are more desirable than gold. And they're sweeter than honey. And so, Lord, we want to experience these realities that the psalmist talks about. You know which of those we need most this morning. Restoring or reviving or rejoicing or enlightening. Whatever the need might be. Lord, we sing, prepare our hearts. And Lord... Our hearts need help. Um, they might be fighting all kinds of distractions, not just from the outside, but from the inside. Lord, things that we came in burdened with or something we're nervous about this coming week or whatever it might be. Lord, it's hard to hear your word when our hearts are restless. And so, Lord, you're the one who said, come when you're weary and heavy laden and You'll give us rest, rest for our souls. So I pray that you would give that this morning. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here who, whose heart is still like stony ground because they have a stony heart, that you would do the miracle you have done for many of us of taking out a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh and giving your spirit and changing us and making us a new creature causing us to be born again to a living hope. So, Lord, we ask that you work this morning. uh, Encourage your people, strengthen our faith, um, convict those who are still outside of your family. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for today discusses some of the blessings believers enjoy because of Christ. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. It's one of the fullest expositions in the Bible of God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. We'll look first at remembering a past blessing The first phrase of Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Justification is one of the key terms in this book. It is God's judicial verdict of declaring someone righteous so that he now sees and treats the person who trusts in Jesus as right in his sight. We are fully acquitted because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. We are fully accepted because of Christ's perfect righteousness. And now we have a new status before God. Paul uses a past 
perfect verb tense. We have been justified. And in case you're a little rusty on your grammar, if you look it up, it says, quote, the past perfect tense, also known as pluperfect, is a form of past tense conjugation that shows that the action from a verb has been completed. In other words, the action of the verb justify has already been completed. It is an accomplished fact. We have already been declared righteous in God's sight. God has already announced his verdict, not guilty but acquitted, not rejected but accepted. When we get to Romans chapter 8, we'll read in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, right now, no condemnation. So what a blessing that we can know that already. I have a friend in Minnesota whose wife was in a traffic accident. Not just a little fender bender, but serious enough where they had to appear in court because they're being sued. That's a very intimidating situation. They didn't know how the case would turn out. They didn't know whether she would be found innocent or guilty. But what if it was possible for the judge to tell her ahead of time, don't worry, I'm going to rule in your favor. I will declare you innocent of any wrongdoing. I will dismiss the case against you. What a relief. Instead of feeling anxious about the outcome, how's this going to turn out? She could enjoy a peace of mind because she already knows what the judge's verdict will be. And that's what we have with the phrase, having been justified. Most people have a basic awareness that they will give an account of their lives to God on judgment day. We might even know that the Bible says it's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. And unless our conscience is out of commission, we also know we are not innocent. Every one of us has done things God says we are not to do and we have all failed to do all that God commands us to do. We might be hanging on to a hope that our good stuff will cancel out our bad stuff, but if that is our approach, we could never know the outcome until we stand before God as judge and hear his final verdict. And we already know from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that's not how it's going to work anyway. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, and that's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. What are we hearing here? Ice. Oh, ice. Okay. <laughs> But what a sweet relief it would be if we could know ahead of time, right now, God has already rendered his verdict, that he has declared us righteous in his sight. Not because we're innocent, because we're not, but because of Jesus. Jesus was completely innocent. We were inexcusably guilty. But he died as a substitute for sinners like us, and he rose again from the dead on the third day. And his righteousness is credited to our account by faith. And so Paul writes in Philippians 3.9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, 
derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So that's what Paul is counting on when he stands before God as judge. He wants to be found in Christ and dressed in Christ's righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And so before we continue, do you know you have been justified before God? If you're not sure, acknowledge, I can't justify my life before a holy God. I can't claim I've always done what's right in his sight. I can't say I've never done what is wrong in his sight. The only verdict I deserve is to be declared guilty. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So we're all included. No exceptions. Nobody righteous. Everybody a sinner. Everybody in trouble before a holy God unless a way can be found. And so we turn from sin and turn from all the ways we might try to justify ourselves before God. Being a good person, doing good things, being religious, none of those things can take away our guilt or restore a relationship with God. So just this past Wednesday, um, I had a phone call with my brother. We talk roughly every month or two. And it had been a while since I had broached the subject of where he's at with God. We've touched on it a number of times over the years. And so I asked him again, and he kind of gave me an initial answer. And so I tried to like, put a, a little clarity on it. And I said, okay. And he's 75. And I said, um, when you die and you stand before God, what would you say if he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And his answer was, I lived a good life and helped other people. And I tried to plead with him, that's not how it works, according to the Bible. It's not about what you have done or I have done. It's about what Christ has done and trusting Christ and not trusting ourselves. And his basic attitude was, well, that's your way and I've got my way. Which is how most of the conversations over the years have gone. <laughs> that's nice for you. It's great. I've got my approach. But Romans 9, which we'll get to later in our study in Romans. Romans 9 says this. What shall we say then, verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So it's good to want righteousness. We all need it to stand before a righteous God and a righteous judge. The question is, where is it coming from? 
is the righteousness in myself, the right things, the good things, the religious things I've done, or is it righteousness in Christ by faith? And Paul's telling us, if you pursue it by your works, you will not get it. If you receive it as a gift by faith, it will be yours. And so we trust in Christ alone to do everything necessary to obtain the forgiveness we need and the righteousness we need to be accepted by a holy God. Remember back in Romans 3, it says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, declared righteous in his sight. How? As a gift, by his grace, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. That's the only way anybody can be right in God's sight. Those who have been justified by faith in Christ enjoy a number of present blessings, which we'll continue to see throughout the book of Romans. Paul mentions two of them in these first two verses. First, a new relationship with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we realize that we didn't always have peace with God? A French philosopher was once asked if he had made his peace with God, and his insolent reply was, I was not aware there had been a quarrel. But that response is completely out of touch with reality. Right in the book of Romans, we can see there is a huge quarrel between God and us. So turn back to chapter 1. In verse 30, Paul's giving an indictment against the human race. Every person who knows the truth about God, suppresses in truth and unrighteousness, exchanges truth of God for a lie. And look at verse 30. Slanderers, haters of God. Haters of God. Natural man, apart from grace, hates God. Chapter 5, a little later, we'll get to 10 and 11. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we were enemies, we needed to be reconciled. Or in 8.7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So there's a problem. There's a barrier. Both directions. We hate God. God has to be opposed to us because he's holy. There's a barrier. There's an enmity. And we are not able to resolve that quarrel. But God removed the barriers that stood between us. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, we now enjoy as a present objective reality peace with God right now. So we already read Romans 5, 10, and 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. 
2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Or Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So by using the language of reconciliation, Paul is reminding us of a precious reality that we not only have experienced a dramatic change in our legal status because of justification, but we have experienced a massive change in our relational status because of reconciliation. We have peace with God when we didn't used to have peace Years ago in California, there was a horrible criminal who was finally arrested and tried and convicted. He was sentenced to several years in prison, and he served his time. When he was released from the penitentiary, no city or town in California wanted him. Technically, the law of California had no further demands on him. His legal status was settled, but guilt was still attached to him. There were still strong feelings against him. He was in good standing before the law, but he was not in a good relationship with anybody. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. He was unwelcome in everyone's sight. God could have changed the legal verdict against us, without restoring a good relationship of favor and friendship and acceptance. There could still be a distance between us. We could still feel like God was holding a grudge against us or that he was unhappy with us. But Paul tells us, but right now, through Jesus Christ, we have and enjoy peace with God. What a blessing. We also now enjoy the blessing of a new standing in Grace, verse 2, back in Romans 5. Through whom, Jesus Christ, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. As we said before, grace is God's undeserved kindness shown to those who deserve his wrath. And Paul says we stand in God's grace. That is our firm, unchanging position. Before we were in a state of sin and under his wrath, and now we are in a state of grace and under his favor. Or as Angela likes to say it, we swim in the ocean of grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We swim in the ocean of grace. That's what It's just around us, surround us. That's the realm we live in. We stand securely in God's pardoning, preserving, sustaining, enabling, all-sufficient grace. And how did we get into this new standing in grace? It says we have obtained access into this grace by faith. The New American Standard has the phrase, our introduction by faith, which is getting at the word Paul used to express not just the idea of access, which is there, but access because of being brought by someone who has a right of access. So, for example, when you go to a military base, 
the standard policy is that no civilians are authorized to enter the base. But when we went to visit our son Ben at the Air Force bases where he was stationed, we could go in as his guests. We didn't have a right to be there on our own. We were only welcome to be there because we were with someone who had the right to be there because he's in the Air Force. We had access to the base because of his introduction. And none of us could ever have had access into the presence of a holy God. We were unworthy to stand before him. We had no right to approach him. But if we have trusted Christ, we come as his guest. We are welcome to be there because of Jesus. We now have access because we are in Christ. And so in Ephesians 2.18, Paul says, Through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So we have access to God through Jesus in the spirit. And then 3, 11 and 12. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So we have access to God. We stand in grace. So Paul has reminded us of a past blessing we have been justified. Because of that new status before God, we now enjoy a new relationship of peace with God, a new standing in his grace. And at the end of verse 2, he talks about rejoicing in a future blessing. And we exalt or rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we need to clarify those terms. First, what is the glory of God? Sometimes it's about giving God the honor and praise that is due him as the great and glorious God that he is. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, when it says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Call attention to the greatness of God. Call attention to his worthiness to be praised. Call attention to his worthiness to get the credit. Call attention to his worthiness to get the honor. That's one way glory of God is used. But here it's a little bit different sense. It's a phrase trying to capture the infinite greatness and unimaginable beauty and majestic splendor of God. John Piper writes... Glory speaks of the beauty of his manifold perfections. It can refer to his bright and awesome radiance or the infinite moral excellence and spiritual beauty of his character. In either case, it signifies a reality of infinite greatness and worth. Another writer said it speaks of the spiritual beauty of his perfect character breaking forth in bright, blinding, awesome radiance. And we have an example of that in 2 Chronicles 7, if you want to turn in your Bibles. 2 Chronicles 7. (laughs) 
verse 1. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord saying truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. So those priests are so overwhelmed by the manifestation of God's awesome presence, they couldn't even enter the Lord's house. And everybody that was there saw the radiant brilliance of God's glory displayed, and they spontaneously bowed down in reverent worship. So that's the idea of the glory of God that we're talking about. This manifestation of God's glorious presence. And Paul is pointing us to the time when we will see and enjoy the glorious presence of God forever in heaven. When we will behold and adore the glory of all that God is in all of its fullness for all of eternity. Matthew Henry says, there is nothing magnificent enough in this world to set forth the glory of heaven. Or when we get to Romans 18, or 8.18, it will say, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory of God in all its fullness that will be revealed to us. That's what's coming. That's the glory of heaven. It's not just golden streets. It's not just seeing your long lost loved ones. It's being with God in his presence and enjoying his glory. So what about the word hope? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We often use the word for not much more than a wish that we have for something good in the future. I hope the weather's good for our trip next week. But obviously there's nothing certain about that. It might be great weather for traveling, but might not be. There's no guarantee which way it'll be. There's, it's kind of flimsy. But the Bible uses the word hope for something much more substantial. It is the idea of looking forward to something good in the future with a confident expectation it will definitely happen because God himself promised it will happen. So we can be confident if we are in Christ that our future destiny is to behold the glory of God. We don't have to wish for it. We don't just have to cross our fingers. God promised that we'll be where we are with him forever. And so it will happen. But Paul doesn't just want us to know about our future destiny, though 
you're like me, maybe we need a, a reminder of that. Maybe this week you kind of forgot this world isn't all there is. I do that. So we're getting a reminder, but it's more than just about knowledge and information. He says, we rejoice or let us rejoice in the hope of enjoying the glory of God forever and ever. Exult with a U, not an A, means to boast or to glory, to rejoice at the highest level. So if we believe it's true that in the presence of God is fullness of joy, if we're convinced that eye has not seen or ear heard or entered into the thoughts of man what God has prepared for those who love him, then an appropriate response would be rejoicing in our hearts. I'll close with this quote from Wayne Grudem. He's got a number of texts from Revelation about the heavenly city. He says, In that city we shall live in the presence of God, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Revelation 22 3. From time to time, here on earth, we experience the joy of genuine worship of God. And we realize that it is our highest joy to be giving him glory. But in that city, this joy will be multiplied many times over. And we will know the fulfillment of that for which we were created. Our greatest joy will be seeing the Lord himself and in being with him forever. When John speaks of the blessings of the heavenly city, the culmination of those blessings comes in the short statement in 22.4, they will see his face. We will see in God's face the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. We will experience the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had to know perfect love and peace and joy. As we gaze into the face of our Lord, we will know more fully than we ever have before that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this glimpse of what you have prepared for your people. You've already told us we can't imagine it or we've never seen anything or heard anything that would do it justice. But even just little glimpses are amazing. To think that sinners like us who should have ended up in hell forever can enjoy being in heaven with you forever only because of Jesus and nothing about us 
just blows us away. And so we thank you that you took care of everything through Jesus to get people like us restored to you, reconciled to you, forgiven by you, so that we could know and enjoy you forever. And I pray for anyone who's here who is still a stranger to that experience and still outside of that destiny of being with you in heaven. Oh God, would you show them the weight of their sin? Would they despair of trying to get rid of it themselves, just like Bunyan's pilgrim? Would they cast it on Jesus, cast themselves on Jesus, put all their hope and trust in Jesus, and come to know you as their God and Father? It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, we talked about four blessings. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God. We stand in grace. We rejoice in hope. That's just four. And the song we're going to sing is called, the subtitle is 10,000 Reasons. So we just started with four. But the idea is there's just so much to give thanks to God for in his grace. Let's stand and sing, Bless the Lord of my soul.